Welcome to the Good Writing Podcast. In this episode, we have a special guest. Our friend Sherry Buick joins us to talk about historical fiction. In this episode, we read the opening to A Mercy by Toni Morrison, and then we talk about some uh, ways to avoid the common pitfalls or temptations in historical fiction. We hope you enjoy the episode. everybody welcome back to the good writing podcast hey hello emily hi ben it's emily and guess who else is here who's here you got eyes we're in the same video meeting oh Use my god eyes. jerry um... <laughs> hello <laughs> jerry hi hey friends what's up what's up happy to be here happy to be figuring out this technology Oh, a strength of all English majors is figuring out which microphone to, how to plug in the microphone. With them. <laughs> Ooh, samesies. <laughs> samesies, Sherry. Um, welcome, our very first guest, our very own, Sherry Buick. Hi, Sherry. Hi. Um, Hi, Emily. Oof. Hi, Ben. My friends. What's going on? Okay, before we get into it, we always like to ask, uh, how was writing for you this week? But since you're a first-time guest, I think we should probably ask you, in general, what's your writing routine like? I know you work a full-time job and also write, so what's what's your deal? How do you do that? Well, guys, I'll say that the 9 to 5 has occurred after the MFA has ended, and so <laughs> I, <laughs> I, I would say, you know, being sensitive to the things that made me want to write during my MFA, and proactively seeking them out and just enjoying those moments so whether it's going out into a little nature trip for the day and saying I'm gonna scribble an idea that I've had kind of bopping around in my head taking that time to you know do the things that energized me and excited me during my MFA and and making space for that so. You mean to tell me that you don't go straight from sitting in your work from home office nine to five to sitting at the same desk <laughs> doing a personal word document instead of a professional one? What do you mean sitting all day nine to five doesn't inspire your writing? <laughs> crazy talk. No, don't you have a window? You can look right out the window and there's nature right there. <laughs> you're, you're right. You're right. Uh, I do have a nice window, but let me tell you, it was ugly when I had attempted to shift into that word document after the night five relatable Relatable. learn some lessons yeah i feel like people don't talk enough about like writing is not it comes from things you need to do the things Mm -hmm. that refill your creative bank Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah, for sure that that was a lesson of the pandemic and of the post mfa for sure so yeah 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 so. During the MFA, Sherry, I definitely think you had the best, um, most impressive, most consistent routine of our graduating yeah. class. You were the yeah. one who, like, powerhouse sat at your computer every day consistently. Mm-hmm. Thanks for um, saying that. And I like to remember that. <laughs> <laughs> to reflect on the olden days. <laughs> <laughs> don't let it be very, very, very don't. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> uh, but yes, yes. Uh, you know, uh, things change and we have to, you know, make our writing happen in the shape that our life takes as it changes. So that's mm-hmm. trying to trying to shine that turd. But um, 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> 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 only so much polish to be put upon it. Uh... God, it's actually disintegrating by the sheer amount of polish that has been applied to that turn. Oh. <laughs> How about you guys? What's uh, what's this writing routine like for you? Or if you care to comment upon it, or just Generous. let the silence lie. <laughs> I may let the silence lie. <laughs> um, I think I, what I realized recently, I um, had a friend in town this past week, and and just have gotten to to reconnect with people. And I think I realized recently a very crucial part of my writing and inspiration for writing is like third hand gossip. Um, and I have not, I have not gotten enough of that during the pandemic. So I am feeling very, uh, creative, well refreshed, uh, today. That makes so much sense too. It's so easy. Like there's not, you can remove that fear of like, oh, will this person find out if I wrote about them? It's like, no, I don't even know who they are. How could they? Like, yeah, that's, Mm -hmm. that makes a lot of sense. Although this famously is how that cat person writer, like, uh, you guys saw the response to Cat Person, where like I've, I've never read Cat Person. I don't know anything about this story. I remember that everyone was very happy and then very angry about it. Um, but that's about it. Yeah. <laughs> you've you've covered the gist of it. Uh, yeah, it was um, this writer who was in an MFA program went on a first date with a guy and then like had a really negative impression of him and mm. heard about his ex who was like a much much younger than him. And then she wrote a short story, like, from basically about that guy from the younger girlfriend's perspective. And then a few years later, the younger girlfriend, like, grew up and wrote her own short story about how actually that wasn't what it was like at all. And, (laughs) um, yeah, yeah, the third-hand gossip is is still a danger. It was still a danger to all. Mm, You like playing with a little fire, Emily. That's whatever. (laughs) Then how was writing for you this week? Uh, writing was, um, you know, um, it, it was, it wasn't a big week for it. It is how it was this week. The, this was a busy work week and it's, you know, it, it's, I, I think Sherry makes a good point of trying to find those things that re-energize you and what give, cause when you said that Sherry, I realized like, I, I don't think I know what it is that re-energizes my writing creativity and I should probably figure that out because, you know, it'll come in bursts, like suddenly I'm just writing again, and it feels good, but a lot of the time, not happening. Like, I've tooled around occasionally, but that's that's really it. It's been slow. It's It may coincide always. with walks. It may coincide with third-hand gossip. Yeah. Gotta figure it out. Yeah. 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 And uh, that's, that's always good to know. Like, hey, then, now you can be sensitive to that and be watching for it and, you know, but, Yeah. Unfortunately, the things that energize me most, it, it brings frustration because I realize it's a thing that takes time and space and energy to create. So it's like, maybe you'll feel really fucking frustrated by the end of it. Can we swear? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we can fucking like, swear for sure. <laughs> you can say any damn swear the hell you want. <laughs> Is this PBS? This is family programming. Yeah. <laughs> I don't expect to be picked up by any such. Yeah. Yeah, worried about it. Yeah. Well, well, okay. Well, let's uh, let's introduce Sherry now that we've got her got everybody warmed up to her. Um, everyone, please welcome the Good Writing Podcast's very first guest, friend of the pod, 
uh, MFA graduate, Sherry Buick. (laughs) (laughs) Sherry, for any of you who have not heard of our good friend Sherry Buick, um, Sherry, by the way, were you a, was it a 2021 Lambda Literary Fellow or were you 2020? Let me think about time. Uh, I believe Pandemic it was... times. <laughs> <laughs> Technically, I think it was 2020, but I think we ended up doing it in 2021 because of gonna... the delay in Gosh. everything that happened. Sherry is a nebulous pandemic era Lambda <laughs> <laughs> Literary Fellow. Um, she is a short story writer. Um, she... Uh, and a delightful friend. Welcome to the oh, show, Sherry. Thank yeah, you. We were honored to know. Yeah. Hey, Sherry, if Aww. can you re- you have um, the sh- most recent short story of yours? Is that online or is that a print only publication? I was about to say we could we should link it in the show notes. I think it. it I believe it's print only, but you can link something if, in the show notes that if anyone wants want to, to purchase link. a literary magazine we'll link you to one that shares <laughs> thanks for that thanks for the links i appreciate it and what an intro that was so kind thank you friends ah uh, it's nearly and the, the truth madam and the woods that was cool i want to woot you guys my friends who motivated me with their cool podcast like it's awesome you guys are doing this you guys i look up to you too come on you dweeb get out of here i can't take a compliment i'm I'm getting off this call (laughs) (laughs) well Well, uh, we here on the good writing podcast treat our guests terribly we make them do homework in order to talk with us and sherry did hers beautifully um Sherry, do you want to introduce us to the craft writing, the, the element of craft with which which we intend to discuss this day? Well, I, I do hear in the industry they refer to this as the marquee topic. <laughs> so, so. Put on blast. <laughs> my, my laundry has been aired. Oh, this can be edited, can't it? Shatter. Anyway, the marquee topic. The marquee topic. Well, guys, you know, uh, in my recent readings, of which there has been far less than in the MFA program, I'm sorry to say, but in my recent readings, I've been reflecting that uh, historical fiction is very hard, guys. Mm-hmm. Like, and I read a book by an author that I typically consider to be quite masterful. I'm not going to say who it was. I'm going to keep this very, very anonymous. But let mm-hmm. me just say that I found this author's most recent book, which was historical fiction by genre, to be not as masterful. And I felt sad by some of the elements of craft that I, I just normally see singing in this author's work. And I mm-hmm. thought, damn, this is real hard stuff. And I say this also as someone who has tried to write historical fiction myself, and I think just fallen flat on my face. Like, and so, you know, as a history major and obviously someone who likes to write stories, I've been trying to figure out the secret sauce of what it is that just makes great historical fiction writing. Mm -hmm. But first, let's let's just back up and let me ask you guys, historical fiction, when I say that, what do you guys think of that as a genre? Like, is that 
something that you guys read, you know, your impressions, you Dang hate it, it you love it, what do you, what do you feel? Emily, I'll hand it to you first if you want to go first. I want you to go first, Ben. Okay. Please jump um, in first. Uh, yeah, the uh, historical fiction is not a genre that I read a lot of or not a style that I read a ton of. Um, I, I don't think that it's anything that I have anything particularly against. Like, it, it's, you know, it's also interesting, like, because when I think of historical fiction, I, I, like, that term kind of sings specifically of more of a, like, my associations are with, like, a genre fiction style of historical fiction, like, mm-hmm. um, and, and also, like, I, I've read more alt history stuff than actual historical fiction. Um, but yeah, j- just as something that's kind of caught in the trappings of it, as much as it's trying to tell you a story is also trying to tell you history at the same time. Like, I, I think that the, the, when I think of that, I think of an emphasis on, like, accuracy and an emphasis on, like, you know, a, a true reflection of what it would have been like to exist at that time. And the depiction of that being a point of interest as much as, like, the plot or the characters themselves are. Like, that. that's kind of what I think of when I think of historical fiction. But that's just someone who hasn't read a lot. Like, mm, yeah. For sure. And Bookmark, that is so fascinating that you say you associate it with genre fiction. You know, with a mm-hmm. particular perhaps not necessarily literary fiction maybe it is maybe it isn't but it has this sort of like yeah right just in the way that it like in the way that i i think of it as being a kind of writing that has a rule set in the same way that a lot of genre work requires a rule set it Mm -hmm. being literary is kind of outside of that i think like you can be Mm -hmm. literary and still obey the rule set like that's fine but just it, it has things that it needs to do in order to fit into its you know under the moniker of genre fiction Sure. Of, um, of historical fiction sorry yeah, yeah sure. i think i'm having a similar reaction like it, when you ask like what's your opinions on historical fiction i initially thought of like really genre tropey not poetic sentences um like bodice rippers and like mm-hmm. like things where it is marketed as historical fiction but then i realized um like my favorite novel of all time, The Great Believers by Rebecca Mackay, is historical fiction. It's set in mm-hmm. the eighties and set in twenty fifteen, which was historical at the time, right? Mm-hmm. But it wasn't marketed as historical fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, it was marketed as literary fiction, even though yeah. it is set in a particular setting. So I think that's there's probably some interesting marketing implications of of historical fiction as a mm-hmm. term mm-hmm. Um, that like raises. I wonder if it's avoided in lit- really literary settings. For sure. Um, and yeah. that, I, I would call that outside the purview of anything that I could no, yeah. comment upon. <laughs> <laughs> but for sure, I, I think that's a really interesting dynamic that's going on when we, I think, we it, think about what it is. Yeah. Yeah. In general, though, I love anything that takes advantage of a unique setting. Yeah. And I think a lot of historical fiction sets out more intentionally to do that. Mm-hmm. They say like, oh, isn't this an interesting dynamic about how society was structured or what the rules were like in this obscure castle or whatever the case may be. Um, yeah, so any any fiction that uses setting and makes, makes setting and, and weird setting like a huge element is really fun for me. Um, so I expect that I m- mostly will like all of the examples you're going to make today. <laughs> Everything you're <laughs> Right. No, and that's also really 
an interesting point too is that you know it, historical fiction does play hard into setting and that is an expectation I think we bring to it when we when we read it or I know I do and so that's a sort of another way of entering into it and thinking about what it is but so guys to move forward with this question of why why is it so hard in my mind it is right mm -hmm. and so I will turn us to a uh, Encyclopedia Britannica definition of what historical oh, fiction oh, is. Wait, Webster's <laughs> defines? <laughs> <laughs> Which, <laughs> normally I would not go to Encyclopedia Britannica for, you know, our, our literary anything. understanding or anything. <laughs> not to trash talk Encyclopedia Britannica, yeah. but... <laughs> wrong with encyclopedia <laughs> <laughs> but i just so happened to stumble upon this and i thought it was so perfect because it really gets at this question of why it's hard and, and yes this this exact marquee topic we're, we're going for here and i quote a historical novel is a novel that has at its setting a period of history and that attempts to convey the spirit manners and social conditions of a past age with realistic detail and fidelity to historical mm -hmm. fact the work may deal with actual historical personages as does robert graves's i claudius from 1934 or it may contain a mixture of fictional and historical characters it may focus on a single historic event as does franz werfel's 40 days of musadar okay. 1934 mm -hmm which dramatizes the defense of an Armenian stronghold. More often, it attempts to portray a broader view of a past society in which great events are reflected by their impact on the private lives of fictional individuals. Since the appearance of the first historical novel, novel Sir Walter Scott's Waverley from 1814, this type of fiction has remained popular. Here we go. Here's the kicker. Though some historical novels, such as Leo Tolstoy's War and Peace, 1865 to 69, are of the highest artistic quality, many of them are written to mediocre standards. Damn, Encyclopedia Britannica. <laughs> Just threw in a zing at the end for no good reason, <laughs> heading out the door, that said, fuck you. Some are good, fiction. like Tolstoy, but most <laughs> bullshit. <laughs> Utter garbage. Okay, Encyclopedia Britannica, which has never heard of a book written more recently than 1939. Uh, they don't even know about the Great Depression in the Encyclopedia Britannica. <laughs> yeah, they come on real strong, and they have one more sentence to say about why it's so mediocre they say one type of historical novel is the purely escapist costume romance which making no pretense to historicity uses a setting in the past to lend credence to improbable characters and adventures right so okay. i take I from that, that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah like i take yeah. from that like wow you know encyclopedia britannica also has to stand up on two legs and be like we're frustrated but i think it also kind of starts to nod in the direction of what i want to propose which is that that in that last sentence you get the sense that we get frustrated or some get frustrated when the past is sort of co-opted to our own sort of needs desires mm -hmm. standards and what i hunger for when i open up a historical novel is something that first and foremost totally grounds us in the strangeness of the past and totally honors this completely disorienting strangeness 
that we absolutely will struggle to make sense of as a modern mm-hmm. reader, right? Mm-hmm. And so at the same time, we're we're readers, we're looking to relate. So there's going to be a tricky balance, I think, of overwhelming a reader with strangeness and allowing them to connect with something that's familiar, right? And I would say that one of the great masters of doing this would be Toni Morrison, right? And so that is the the true marquee topic. (laughs) (laughs) A beautiful day. A beautiful day with Toni Morrison on the Good Writing Podcast. Long overdue. Long overdue. Yeah. Have you? Yeah. So we're going to, we're going to turn our thoughts to um, Toni Morrison's A Mercy and... I have the first couple of pages that I think we might enjoy reading. So this is a, a, a novel that is set in 1690, early American novel. And the central character is Florence, who is a young girl who is being uh, given away by her mother to be taken by a Dutch trader away from what she, the mother, perceives to be uh an insufferable horror in her own home plantation. And so in, in a sense, Toni Morrison is sort of bringing back familiar themes that we've seen touched on in Beloved. Um, but that's the context that we should know about before we read these couple of paragraphs. Okay. A Mercy by Toni Morrison. Don't be afraid. My telling can't hurt you in spite of what I've done. And I promise to lie quietly in the dark, weeping perhaps, or occasionally seeing the blood once more but I will never again unfold my limbs to rise up and bare teeth. I explain. You can think what I tell you a confession if you like, but one full of curiosities familiar only in dreams, and during those moments when a dog's profile plays in the steam of a kettle, or when a cornhusk doll sitting on a shelf is soon splaying in the corner of a room, and the wicked of how it got there is plain. Stranger things happen all the time, everywhere. You know. I know you know. One question is, who is responsible? Another is, can you read? If a peahen refuses to brood, I read it quickly. And sure enough, that night I see a Minha May standing hand in hand with her little boy, my shoes jamming the pocket of her apron. Other signs need more time to understand. Often there are too many signs, or a bright omen clouds up too fast. I sort them and try to recall, yet I know I am missing much, like not reading the garden snake crawling up to the door saddle to die. Let me start with what I know for certain. The beginning begins with the shoes. When a child, I am never able to abide being barefoot and always beg for shoes, anybody's shoes, even on the hottest days. My mother, Amina May, is frowning, is angry at what she says are my prettifying ways. Only bad women wear high heels. I am dangerous, she says, and wild, but she relents and let me wear the throwaway shoes from Sinhora's house. Pointy toe, one raised heel broke, the other worn and a buckle on top. As a result, Lena says, my feet are useless, will always be too tender for life, and never have the strong soles tougher than leather that life requires. Lena is correct. Florence, she says, it's 1690. Who else these days has the hands of a slave and the feet of a Portuguese lady? So when I set out to find you, she and mistress gave me sir's boots that fit a man, not a girl. They stuff them with hay and oily corn husks, and tell me to hide the letter inside my stocking, no matter the itch of the sealing wax. I am lettered, but I do not read what mistress writes, and Lena and Sorrow cannot, but I know what it means to say to any who stop me. 
Thanks, Emily. Whew. <laughs> yeah. How, how was that for you? <laughs> um, good. Confusing, Ben. No, what do you think? <laughs> it's a deeply dense opening two paragraphs. Like, two this Yeah. Book. It's also dense with specific images that mm-hmm. I don't as a like reader in 2022 know much about corn husk dolls or peahens mm-hmm. um <laughs> lead, a, yeah. lead a pretty urban life um but I I don't feel like I, I I feel like even though I don't necessarily understand every image um right now I don't feel like I'm have to you know I'm not like worried yeah. about missing out on things i'm not frustrated with it um i'm just kind of letting it wash over me is where i'm at yeah yeah it, it, it's strange without being alienating because like while while the imagery is unfamiliar it, it, it's not without context it, it's not without understanding like we might not know exactly what a corn husk doll is but we can imagine it like we we can give our some sort of weight to that it's not just a blank blank space in our heads um, yeah, so so it's it, I think that kind of brings us to that point that you mentioned earlier, Sherry, uh, of just trying to find the, that that strangeness of the past while while still being grounded in it, like trying to find a way of like ha- having ourselves like be in this space, even though it is basically like touching down on another planet. Like there there's you know it's it's just as much of a shock kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it is a totally different world. Um, Sorry. Right, right, yeah, and it, I I remember picking this up for the first time and and being, you know, frustrated with myself for not being able to understand that immediately. Right, a sort of like, mm-hmm. what you know, we we have these degrees, right? We should, <laughs> <laughs> like, but I I think there is something to that frustration that can be really productive right Mm -hmm. and so Mm -hmm. after a couple more reads now i i realized that there's something that was very tangibly you know there for me in a line like you can think what i tell you a confession if you like but one full of curiosities familiar only in dreams and during those moments when a dog's profile plays in the steam of a kettle so there's something as you're saying so yeah i can imagine the the image of a dog's profile playing in the steam of a kettle but there's there are layers of sort of confusion to that sentence where mm-hmm. it's like it, so is this a confession is this novel going to be a confession or is it going to be something like a confession full of curiosities familiar only in dreams during those moments when a dog's profile plays in the steam of a kettle it just it just keeps going with this sense of what is this novel going to be and so that line on its own I, i couldn't wrap my head around it initially when i read it but then coming back to it it's it seems so fitting as she sort of signposts immediately that there will be a certain disorientation and and a, a lack of certainty in in the very sort of setup of what this story is and what it's going to be, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? And and so I found that to be a, a great way to train the reader to say like, oh yeah, I guess I'm maybe I'm not supposed to know what this is, right? Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. and so that was my reading. Um, 
that way. Or, I I like something about that. Like confession feels adult, criminal, etc. Mm-hmm. And then these other imageries are like a child's perspective, a child like imagining mm-hmm. thing, imagining shadow puppets, basically like the dog's mm-hmm. shadow image and the steam and um, things in dreams. And so I think it's. I have not read this Toni Morrison novel. I have not read A Mercy, but that's likely fitting for the story based on what I've read about it. Um, like very adult, heavy things happening, a confession, and also a child like child narrator with an imaginative eye. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's true. There, there are layers there of sort of the maturity level, right? Mm-hmm. Um, of this narrator. Yeah. Hmm. I think that that sentence does almost like uh, ritualistic work also like to like evoke the novel to the reader like it's drawing the reader into the space in those moments you know when you say like you can think of it like this or you can think of it like this or you know these different images that can be used as the basis for the reader's own like interpretation or access into the story Um, that sort of thing like you know as a way of opening your book is like addressing the connection between the past being evoked here and the contemporary reader as they stare into the book itself in the world that it's like mm-hmm. kind of, kind of coming into shape before you and, and like those kind of like side images the things being dreamlike and whatnot or, or being described as being potentially that way kind of shows in that similar way of how it is when we try to look into the past and try to glean something from it, especially something set far back as 1690, in which case, you know, we have what we have of that time period, but much of it is just completely lost. Like, much of it we just do not know and have no way of knowing currently, like, if ever. So, and I think it does that work, yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's that sort of space of you can think of it this way, you can think of it this way, you can think of it mm-hmm. this way, right? And mm-hmm. and and coming out and, and stating that up front as, as that mm-hmm. sort of what this project is trying to do is to potentially find that space where you could think of it in many ways or maybe mm-hmm. we don't know because of, mm-hmm. of how distant we are. And I, I find that Toni Morrison is consistently such a master of this because... Uh, you know, obviously I didn't write my PhD dissertation on Toni Morrison or this novel, so this is me just sort of talking off, off the seat of my pants here. How but dare like, you <laughs> come on our talk, podcast and talk? You want to opine on our opinion podcast? <laughs> this podcast can be thought of as the largest armchair in the world for any philosopher that wants to sit in it, so don't... <laughs> About that. Let me get, oh. I'll get comfortable in this armchair. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, please. Uh, but but from what I understand, her her impetus for a novel like A Mercy or a novel like Beloved is exactly the question of not knowing uh, what mm. the past was. Uh, so with Beloved, she stumbled upon the story of a woman who murders her own child to prevent her from the horrors of living out the slave experience, right? Mm-hmm. Of being mm-hmm. slave. And, yeah. and, and she said, I, how can I understand that? I do not. <laughs> As a modern, you know, 20th century person in, in my experience. Uh, but on the other hand, of course, there's, there are ways that she could relate to that, obviously, and 
digging into her points of connection to that story while also front and center for grounding us with a story that we absolutely can't quite comprehend in our time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think this novel does that as well with Florence's story of being given away by her mother. Mm-hmm. Um, and so those are those are the stories, the historical fiction stories that grab me and hold me. It is when that strangeness is, is foregrounded. And that makes me wonder, just sort of opening it up to your own reflections about that question and writing fiction is, you know, I don't know if you've struggled with this in your own work in any way, or as a reader, if you struggled with that outside of historical fiction, to what extent do you make something to what extent do you foreground strangeness and what is unknowable and what is incoherent and what is disorienting and and where is that line for you with what you want to offer your reader and yeah i mean this this core question is not that different from any novelist's yeah. task right yeah. it is the impossible task of why would an, how does another person behave what motivates yeah. a character yeah. That is in a completely unfathomable setting, like what it would like to, to be fleeing slavery is, is, yeah, I will never understand what that is like. I will read about it for forever, but I will never truly feel it. But mm-hmm. um, that is, yeah, I think every really serious novel is trying to do some of that, usually in less strange settings. Mm-hmm. It, it's, that... you know, we'll never know what, what motivates other people entirely. Um, and even when we can capture them into a story, it's like one version of their motivation, not necessarily, you know, the, the truth is often messy and it's contradicting and, um, hard to make a good story out of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ben, thoughts? Yeah. Um, I mean, definitely like complete agree, um, is where I definitely begin because it is just like, and just to expand from that, it's not just characters, I think, but it's the strangeness of attempting to represent the infinitude that is experience in the finitude of the written form like mm-hmm. we're you're always trying to co- like smash something down that is too impossibly large to actually fit within the container of the story like mm-hmm. and the hope for the writer and where i think technique comes in and craft is where you're finding those corners to shave in order to imitate that infinitude without actually where where it is actually impossible to bring it in um and, and where you're willing to like kind of shape the the box around it or the form around it in order to allow the um that to be perceived by the reader without actually having to bring in you know the the sheer weight of experience of a person's experience mm. and, and i think kind of to go on on your question a little bit i think you were asking about like how how where do we draw that line on how much strangeness to bring in if i understood you correctly sherry is that fair or yeah 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 to and to what extent do we challenge a reader with that level of disorientation yes yeah strangeness it i think it of course depends on what you're trying to write but i always think it is a good idea to challenge the reader because you know the reader's smart like if they're if they are actually reading your book they've bought or your story or whatever they've bought in and they're they're here they're they're gonna be okay with you challenging them so i always think it's all right to kind of 
try to push them and, and try to, you know, the the only line you should draw is when you push so far that you lose track of it, like, as the writer. Like, mm. as long as you can keep it in bounds, I think you should be able to go as far as you want to go with what you're creating. Like, I, mm. I don't think there's any need to do otherwise. Yeah. It is interesting, you know, that Encyclopedia Britannica drag at... Um, mm-hmm old british historical romances right Mm -hmm. was in part because like encyclopedia britannica i think was was like criticizing writer romance historical romance writers for like Mm -hmm. forcing in modern day story into settings where it doesn't make sense Mm -hmm. and then on the other extreme of the spectrum like the other fear is like uh making the historical setting so strange and not at all to modern readers' tastes that people give up on it and, and can't mm-hmm. engage. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's interesting. And uh, there isn't, I don't think there ever is, you know, a, a one-size-fits-all answer to, like, how much do you let the his- historical research steer your story or how much do you make your story steer how you represent, if you represent historical details. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm just gonna also kind of wonder, like, you know, it. How, how bad is it, really? Like, there are obviously scenarios where it is an issue, but just to use history as setting and to tell the modern day story within setting, like, within historical mm-hmm. setting, like, well, that's not going to be of interest to every reader. I, I don't th- I don't think that that represents like an inherent evil like it, it's bad it's bad if you're using you know slavery as like a, j- just an object within your story like that's obviously not something you should do but if it's just like you happen to you know want to describe the clothing of the 1800s aristocracy but other than that they just act like petulant teenagers from the modern day like you know <laughs> I, I can tell you right now that book's selling like that that that's the thing like, yeah i'd read the hell out of that yeah um, yeah think. for sure i there's another couple of sentences that i really liked from this section that i think are maybe a model of like balancing making things accessible to modern day readers and also um using historical mm-hmm. points of references um so this is when lena who i'm context cluing is probably a older sister to the narrator florence Lena's criticizing Florence. Florence, she says, it's 1690. Who else these days has the hands of a slave and the feet of a Portuguese lady? Um, right, yes. I can, t- you know, like, one, the, the, the humor of, like, come on, it's 2020. You know, like, it's 1690. Yeah. Like, you're so modern all the time. Every For all of history, we've been saying, come on, it's 1358. You know, like, live a little. Um, <laughs> Get with the times. <laughs> Get with the times. You don't have plague. <laughs> Um, yes. Yeah. So exactly. it, it's 1690 is just inherently funny because like, I'm never gonna mm. not think of. Come on, it's the 21st century. Um, <laughs> but who else these days has the hands of a slave and the feet of a Portuguese lady? Does so much to characterize Florence's body, um, mm. their points of reference, and is still easy for me to understand what's happening. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Exactly. And uh, the the relief of humor in that line is just, or, or a sense of humor, right? Mm-hmm. Especially when you read that out loud, there's something to that. And 
I would also say, yeah, to your point exactly, this is a, a through line of familiarity in human experience to, you know, to want something beautiful for yourself, right? Mm-hmm. And in, in, in this case, when Florence is wearing, you know, wanting those shoes, it creates this sort of contrast, right? And mm-hmm. so... I think that the other thing that I've noticed about historical fiction writing is that we can get into this sort of like mode of of the somber, right? Where it's mm-hmm. like mm, times were times were hard and times were difficult, right? And mm-hmm. so there isn't sometimes we we're, as a reader I search for that levity or that moment where yeah, they would joke like that with someone else in this moment, mm-hmm. right? Like mm-hmm somebody else would turn to her and and sort of give her a hard time about that, right? And so, yeah. yeah. People enjoy pleasure, even if there isn't electricity. Yeah. (laughs) And, and like, it's the thing also, it's like, times are always hard. It's hard right now. There are, you know, that's that's universal to, like, Mm -hmm. so to fall into that is like as if it's a problem of the past is strange. Like, yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Which, you know, obviously in this context, right, like, Tony Morris is taking on the story of a slave. So, yes. of course, like, obviously, we acknowledge the mm-hmm. what that is, right? Yeah. It's going to be heavy. But, yeah. <laughs> but, on the, but on the other hand, obviously, there's that human element of two yeah. people who are joking together, right, in this context, and giving yeah. each other a little, bit of, a little bit of crap, right? And so mm-hmm. I think that, yeah, you're right. That is a moment where that sort of strangeness is balanced with, a, a line of dialogue we can immediately connect with, yeah. you know, and and laugh and laugh about it some way, and or at least experience how what that would have been like from their own perspective within that conversation to be to be laughing about it, right? Yeah, and absolutely. so, um, yeah, no, I think that that's true, um, but um, yeah. So this other historical fiction that you referenced from a writer who normally does modern day literary realism um what uh what what else are i guess what uh, we always try to like be like what craft exercise would you create based on what we've talked about today Mm -hmm. um what else is missing or could you know what are some, some other common mistakes that either that writer or that commonly happen with people trying to do historical fiction. And yeah. do you have any recommendations for exercises to help avoid this kind of mistakes? I, I feel like what I would do for myself is, which is something I'm actually now trying to do with some of my historical fiction stories that I've started and gotten frustrated about and stopped, it would just be to say, what what is the thing about them that I absolutely do not understand? Mm. <laughs> and to... Mm identified that right up front and and free write about it and i think it's it's also the sort of thing that you can solve perhaps through doing more reading about the period of course because Mm -hmm. then you find that those stories that are utterly strange that you can't wrap your head around right and then the writing can proceed from there right you have Mm -hmm. a short exercise where you try to embody that that thing that you don't understand and and honor it i think that um yeah uh 
for my own revision, my, my exercise, another exercise for myself will be to just go back through and say, like, where do I instinctually see that I am storying this? You know, where you, you know, those moments where you're just kind of like making something more coherent than you truly instinctually know it to be, where Mm. you're sort of like overwriting it, where you know that there are truly, you don't have the answer. I don't know if you guys can identify with those little moments and stories where you're like, you've sort of contrived something, right? That isn't Mm. necessarily true. Yeah. So this is like that classic, like, I need my protagonist to be downtown and to run into that other character. Yeah. Or, like, but I literally have no reason for my protagonist to leave the house. Like, okay, I'll I'll make up some... This is, like, that on a much higher level. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The the desire to create coincidence, which inherently is prevents it from being coincidental as a result of that. Like, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I would say those are some things. Um, mm-hmm. I, and would you guys identify with any of those kind of like issues in the writing that, you know, that <sighs> sense of like that right there, that that really wasn't quite the truest thing. That was me sort of like oh. trying to make a, a sweet story out of it or trying to make a clear, coherent picture out of it when it really yeah. was a little bit messier than that. Yeah, right. of course. Like, of course, all, all the time, because it's like that... I think that speaks to just a problem that, that writers are always facing, right? It is that you're all... Like, you know, we talk about, like, a contrivance, like, being this point that, that you're going towards in this, where it's like, oh, that's where it became this. Well, the entire act is a contrivance. A story is contrived. Like, you're creating it whole cloth. Like, it, it's always going to be under the burden of intention and, like, what your authorial desires are um for the story to do and you're always going to be kind of fighting those in favor of you know either naturalism or or you know some sort of you know disconnected from the self version of the story that you hope might actually be able to have exist yeah like but you're always going to be stuck writing it like yeah Yeah, i am often trying to just i i often find that my first or second draft is just at the end just full-blown moralizing you know like full-blown putting this in exactly here's what before it was and i I think that may be more tempting when dealing with a historical setting because how i know as you know an american public school kid i know how i learned history was in a cause and effect way right we learned history like they did this and so then that happened later right and we learned it in a i think moralizing way um and yeah i think i yeah i think that must be so much more tempting with historical settings or historical characters to then yeah moralize or you know set up for the next whatever happened next in history yeah i i think saying it with um it being an issue of how we understand history especially in the context of this being a big part of that like i think you hit the nail on the head there emily like i think that's exactly it yeah yeah absolutely like searching for what is the lesson here as opposed to 
the reality that mm, maybe we don't know <laughs> and maybe there are many yeah. answers or maybe there were many. Um, yeah, because lessons right. are always after the fact. You, you figure out what the lesson was after something happens. The lesson isn't in the happening. Like, yeah. Yes, yes, right. So hmm. I think, yeah, that's. I think that's absolutely dead on, Emily. Yes, yes. Um, but I, well, I don't want to keep carrying on here with, um... <laughs> Damn, okay. <laughs> Wrap it up, Sherry said. Wrap it up. Uh, <laughs> all right. Uh, Ben, any final thoughts on historical fiction? Um, no, just thank you for sending this over. This was a really cool little section. I want to read this book now. So, yeah. Yeah, it was excellent. Yeah. Mm delighted that you brought Toni Morrison in. I'm going to link in the show notes when we post this episode the extremely famous and helpful Toni Morrison Paris Review interview. You guys know the one, um, The Art of Fiction from Toni Morrison. She talks a little yeah. bit about like her writing routines and what fiction means to her. Um, if you haven't read that, stop what you're doing. Stop the day. Mm-hmm. Read read this Toni Morrison interview. Um, mm-hmm. You'll find it in the show notes below. And you'll also find a link to a random short story published uh, by our dear friend, Sherry Buick. Okay, so (laughs) to wrap up our episode, um, Ben and Sherry, what is either something you've read recently that you recommend or a non-reading, non-writing recommendation? Sherry, you're the guest if you'd like to go first. It's the the recommendation final minute. Sure. One thing that you book recommendation, book recommendation. Um, Clara and the Sun, I would say, uh, and uh, that is absolutely not historical fiction in any way, shape, or form. Uh, okay, combo breaker. <laughs> <laughs> Should I say more? Yes. Why? Yeah, who's it by? What, what is Just it? Just a title. Yeah. We're trying to. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Well, I'm, I honestly have never, this is embarrassing because I've never said the author's name out loud. And I, I don't know how to say the author's last name. Um, <laughs> but we read uh, this author in Papatia's Glass. And, Kazuo, uh, Ishi, Kazuo Ishiguro. Okay. Yes. Ishiguro. Yeah. Thank you Bet. for that help. Um, but it is about uh, children who have AI in their homes in some sort of undefined future and oh just i I, the way he pairs a sort of like this highly futuristic concept with this polite conversational style and and manner of looking at the world that feels almost antiquated it's it's a really interesting prose experience and it's very interesting yeah i love it awesome I loved the Ishiguro. Uh, that was um, the Butler novel that we read. Help me. What was? Oh, the remains of the day. Yes. Is that the that remains one? of the day? Yeah, yeah. That was Phenomenal. it. Hell of a writer. It's a great, great writer. <laughs> great time. <laughs> uh, cool. I might have to check it out. Oh yeah. Um, I will recommend uh, the album uh, Jerusalem uh, by the artist Muslim Gaze. Uh, it is an electronic artist, uh, electronic album. Uh, it came out in the, I believe, the late 90s. Uh, at least it would have had to because the artist pa- sadly passed away in 1999. 
but it is a uh, pro-Palestinian um, album of electronic music. Um, it, it used a lot of samples from traditional um, Arabic sources uh, hmm. and uh, combined with kind of like noisy sort of industrial um, production over the top of it. it it's very good. It, it's actually pretty danceable. If you listen to it, like there's a couple moments where it cuts out, but it's, it's, it's really cool. Um, but yeah, I, I recommend that Jerusalem. Um, very, very interesting piece of piece of work, piece of music. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds really. What was the artist? Muslim gauze, uh, cool. uh, as in like t- a take on uh, using the word Muslim instead of muslin. In, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. Cool. It's good. Yeah. Uh, my recommendation is going to be a movie I watched last night, but it very much fits for a historical fiction discussion. Um, the Last Duel, um, mm. Jodie Com- Comer is in it. Um, it was extremely good. It's streaming on HBO right now, um, mm. and it's set in the plague times, and it's uh, the final duel to the death uh, to settle a legal dispute. Um, mm. And it, mm. it has a really interesting structure. It's like the truth according to, to this knight, the truth according to this squire, the truth according to oh. Lady Marguerite. Um, like a which is like, yeah. yeah, which I like love that structure in like heist movies, and it was really cool to see mm-hmm. it in in a historical knights and swords movie. And oh, cool. um, it's also just really charming. Wow. Great, great example. I think of some of the things we talked today about, like you know, f- texture true to historical accuracy, but like sense of humor that is relatable and accessible today. Um, yeah, great movie. No, yeah, yeah that's really cool. That's like, I didn't even know they were dueling in over legal battles during plague times. You think they were just all dying, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it like everyone be busy. But... So it's set in France, and it, apparently it was like so, it had been so long and it was so rare for the king to agree to let two people duel to the death over a legal dispute that the entirety of Paris rearranged their weeks in order to attempt. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and then we, we like looked up a little bit about like how the historical facts compare to the film, and it was really uh, true to it, really accurate. Um, that's cool. The last duel. Well, that's a delight. That is very apropos, indeed. <laughs> heck of a movie, heck of a movie. <laughs> Uh, okay, guys. Well, this was the Good Writing Podcast uh, with Ben K, Emily D, and our special guest Sherry B. <laughs> <laughs> if you enjoyed the show, you can leave us a five star review on Apple. If you didn't enjoy the show, please keep walking. Um, thank you for listening. <laughs> and, um, if you want to drop us a quick comment, we're on Twitter at Good Writing Pod. And if you'd like to drop us a longer comment, including any suggestions for the show, we are super excited to hear from you. And you can email us at goodwritingpodcast at gmail.com. Anything else, guys? Thanks, everybody. Thanks, guys. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Goodbye, friends. (laughs) 